0: So as uh, Jaya said last night, could you turn it down just a wee bit? It's too loud for me, I tell you. (laughs) And I'm the one who counts. (laughs) It's like blasted in my ears. (laughs) Okay, you guys going to be all right in the back there? No? You can't hear it? Really, I'm talking really loud now. I do, I know. Always, I know. It's true. It's true, I know. Okay, a little bit up, but not as loud as before. I really, it's really too loud. All right, this is it. This is, nothing makes everybody happy for long. That's how it is. Anyways, Jaya said last night, it, uh, this is the requisite talk on anatta. But as it happens, I really enjoy exploring and talking about this, let's say concept, not a concept, it's just a pointing to our direct experience, the whole sense of um, not identifying with experience as a lasting sense of self. And I know um, the concept, the idea of anatta is often one that... um, people's minds can get kind of stuck around, you know. Just as um, Jaya said last night, the perception of impermanence, the perception of it leads to freedom. So too is the perception of anatta, of, of uh, not-self. But our minds can get so caught, maybe yours not, in this whole idea of, if there's no self, who's driving my car? If there's no self, how will I know where I live? If there's no self, will, everyth- you know, will everything fall apart? All of that kind of stuff. Or you're struggling. Every time you notice a sense of self is, ah, another failure. Again, the sense of self, will it ever go away? Right? Have you ever had... You're waiting, waiting for the big explosion of emptiness and it's all over. You never have to deal with this self again, Right? You see what a burden, you're ready for it to go. And somehow that didn't happen yet, did it? And so since we really, that we get caught in philosophical thinking about it. And this one, if you start believing it, I want to say endless, endless. And so why I love talking and exploring, sense of self actually, I like to talk about demystifying the sense of self, investigating the sense of self. Because, you know, as the Buddha, everything he taught, as far as we can tell, isn't to introduce us to new philosophical concepts to discuss. It's really, you know, wasn't his point in choosing what to share, but to point us to accurate perception of our direct experience to see what frees our heart and minds from confusion and suffering. So he's not like pointing to anatta to drive us crazy you know see if you can get subtle enough to really see it you know no he's pointing to an obvious truth of how things are that when we begin to recognize frees us from confusion and so you know what I the way I like to The way I look at it, which is fun, and that's the angle of this talk, is hopefully from a very practical exploration of the moment-to-moment experience of sense of self arising, sense of self passing away. Not about, if we think about it right, then we'll get the big bang. Also, I'd like to point out, it's not always like that. There's one big explosion and you're completely free. It's often the way... um, Suzuki Roshi talked about, you know how he talks about getting wet in a fog? You've heard that simile he uses a lot, yes? No. Well, he talks about if you go, if you go walking out in a huge thunderstorm, you get really soaked, and you know it. There's no secret. So we're waiting for that, the big boom. But he says if you go walking out in a, in a fog, and you get that here, you know, we get that here a lot, fog, and if you go really walking in it for a couple of hours, you don't quite notice when, but you get soaked, like soaked to the skin, soaked to the bone. But it's a gradual process. And I know in, in, in my experience, for myself and for many, many people, that's how insight, that's how our understanding is developing. Little blips, moment by moment, accurate perception, moment by moment. And we don't even recognize a lot of the time that that's what's happening. Because... We're looking for the big thing. And also, a lot of these moment-to-moment of insights are not so pleasant. And so, you know, that's kind of, oh, God, what a drag, this is coming up again, you know. And Anyway, so that's really how it works. So I want to talk about uh, really demystifying anatta, exploring the sense of self. Just some ideas that come to my mind, some some tips, not in any way uh, covering everything. But first, I to talk about really what's the nature of insight? You know, what is really understanding? There's a famous quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh, I use a lot. Understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you believe it? It is the result of the long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. It's from Thich Nhat Hanh. I know you all experience that. Sometimes you'll come into an interview and you'll really have, you know, very real experience you want to talk about and the words just don't really do it. You know, they're too rigid and limited. So... We can't think our way into insight, but one way I like to, the way I experience insight is like a shift of perception. It's not that reality suddenly changed, but the perception, the way we see and understand it suddenly shifts, you know what I mean? And this is like you know, not just uh, dhamma insight, but just in our, in our life. I think I talked at the very beginning right view is really literal. You know, suddenly oh, we recognize, or using seeing as a kind of metaphor for all the senses more accurately. We suddenly see a situation different or a problem, suddenly you see what you could do in that problem, Our personality, a whole new angle. So in a way, the recognition of a sense of self not being a real entity is very similar. It's like a, um, a you know, that trompe l'oeil, like a, a, when you see a, a, a picture, you know, that very famous one that looks like a, a line drawing of a vase. And you see a vase, but if you look at it another way, it's two faces in profile. That's a very famous one. Or those magic eye things that are just geometric colors. And if you look for a long time in the right way, suddenly a, like a 3D image springs out. You know, they have whole books of those where people just sit and stare at them for, you know. So, you see, once you see the other way, both ways, it's not like the first way of perceiving went away, but we also perceive there's another way of recognizing the same set of circumstances. See what I mean? And both then, both ways of perceiving might be accessible. It didn't... Change reality, but it expanded. It really changed how we can perceive and understand in more than one way. And also we might see more accurately. So when in those magic eye ones, when suddenly you see like two two hockey players, now this is a trick question. Are there really two hockey players in that flat sheet? Is there really a three-dimensional picture in that flat sheet? No, it's a shift in perception but you've seen the picture. If someone else came to you who never saw it and said, well, you're just a fool. There's no other thing in there. It's just these, these blue and yellow geometric patterns. You don't have to get into a fist fight about it. You don't have to prove anything, but you know for yourself. That's really what we call verified faith. You've seen it for yourself. You may not always be able to see in that way again, but you've, you've known that there's another possibility. Just that simple shift in perception It's like a kind of uh, an example of what insight is like. Once we recognize that perception shifts, the perception leads to how we think about the world, how we view, how we respond, how we act, and I'll say more about that, and we've talked some about that already. So that's kind of like the, the basic of, of how insight works, this shift. So to come to um, the sense of self, there's one sutta, which I didn't write down where it is, I read it years ago, where the Buddha describes our mind and consciousness as being like a magic show. He gives the example, as I recall, as if a, a magician comes and sets up his stall on the crossroads, you know. And so the mag- magician has a stage and he's doing all the magic tricks. And you know how it is when you first see it. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And now, of course, we're all so cynical and sophisticated. We know there's no real magic and we assume it's a trick. I'm, I'm Thinking back then the Buddha was thinking maybe people were wow, that's amazing. How does he do it? Oh it's magic. But then he says, if once you go behind and you see how the trick is done, all the sense of magic falls apart, doesn't it? We see, oh that's how it's done. Very logical, cause and effect, there's no mystery about it. So he says the same thing for how consciousness, how, how perception And um, thinking can construct our view of the world. So I'm going to use that in terms of the magic show in terms of how it constructs our view, a view of ourself as being, um, you know, a separate, steady, lasting entity. And even if we say in our mind, well, I know it's not, but the way we respond, the way we we react is often from the sense or the assumption that there is? Or am I wrong about that? I mean, does anyone have a sense that you sometimes react to things in the world as if it was all about you and you're the center of everything and that's really, yeah, that's that's how we look. But, and this is from Ramana Maharshi. Somewhere. I'll find it. Or not. <laughs> oh no. It's my favorite quotation from Romana. I could, oh, here it is. That's a, I could almost make it up, but I won't. Okay. Anyone? All right, I'm going to have to make it up. Oh no, here it is. Okay. It's along the lines of what the Buddha said about a magic show. So Ramana says, The idea of self is like a ghost caused by the play of shadows. If you look closely, the ghost vanishes because the ghost was never there. So also with a sense of separate self. So long as one does not look closely at it, it continues to give trouble. But when one looks for it, there's nothing to be found. It's found not to exist. And so what I get I think is really interesting, and I love doing it say in, in my own life, not like just formal practice, but my own life, is really noticing. Bring in when the sense of self arises. Because certainly, I would say, we experience a sense of self, experientially, right? I mean, it's, it seems to be there pretty much all the time. That's our assumption. But the felt sense, physical or mental, emotional, felt sense of me, of self, is there anyone who never experiences that? You know what I mean? Just very basic sense of me. This is something that we experience and i think sometimes the confusion comes when people are like thinking well i i shouldn't be experiencing this or i'm not experiencing this or it's something that has to stop being experienced you know we get all like crazy about it instead of just noticing whenever sense of self arises turn ours is another arising experience we can notice we don't have to make it some big special thing it's really a lot of fun to explore this because it does come up a lot. When and, uh, Ramana is saying, you know, turn and look at it, because I think what happens a lot in terms of perception is when something that's so familiar, sense of me, it's so familiar that when it comes up, it's almost not even recognized as something arising. It's just kind of like an assumed backdrop, right, for everything that's going on. And kind of, we don't think to look at it, It's almost like our our perception or our awareness just kind of like snapshot. or we just, you know, assume it and keep on going and and act from it instead of stopping to see, whoa, what is this? So how is it a magic show? You know, a sense of self arising in a moment is really, back to my talk of last week, it's really concocted out of moment-to-moment aspects of our experience. It's a concoction, you know, a cocktail that's arising over and over and over and over all through the day with kind of different elements, but not looked at closely, it feels like it's always the same. And so the way I want to talk about it tonight is that for often, often, don't want to say always, but often, often the concocting begins with a moment of perception. Perception. So we've we've talked about perception, right? It's been talked about quite a bit. You know what we mean by perception in a moment. That sense of when there's a say sense object, a sight, a sense door that works, an eye, and the two come together, sight, eye, and there's consciousness. That's called contact. So that's happening like every moment of our being alive, right? Fast, fast, so fast. And when, when contact comes together one of the five aggregates that, say, as as someone mentioned, I think Andrea or Brian, one of the five aggregates is perception. This quality, it's a mental quality that recognizes the experience. So seeing, and perception is based on memory, you know, be person, or if it's someone you know, it might be the name, or it might be red, recognizing it as a color, recognizing it as a bowl, right? This is going on all the time. Obviously, although it's not so obvious, it's pretty subjective because um, the particular perception recognition is, of course, uh, influenced coming out of our particular life experience, isn't it? But first to say perception arising every moment is certainly very useful. It's how we construct, it's how our whole world is constructed and explained. Of course half the time is constructed and explained inaccurately so that's the problem but we need some some perception and when we're all in more or less agreement it helps things to run like you hear the bell gong out there you know 15 minutes ago you know bell you know oh it's time to come into the hall you know the perception is you're yogis and I'm the speaker you shut up and I talk it's helpful You know, if we all didn't have any perception of who's doing what, it'd be chaos, chaos, and we hate chaos. So perception is really very useful. But it's also interesting to see how quickly the whole world, our whole description of a world, forms around perception. Just to see how it works is also a very fun thing to play with here on retreat. Some people have been talking about it. A simple example happened to me a couple weeks ago. Um, but it just struck me because it was so clear. I was looking for a book, um, for something about my talk a couple weeks ago, some quotation, and I don't have my books here. And, uh, Andrea found the book for me down in the, in the staff yurt. So I was looking through the book. It's a thick book, and I opened it to the page I want, and someone had already marked it there, little note. And I looked at the note, and it was like this immediate, perce- it was my handwriting. <laughs> it's like, oh great, some things don't change. You know, it's been two years since I was here. But it was like this immediate sense of me, you know? It's just a piece of paper with pencil scrolls on it. And, and me, it was like a felt sense of me. It was really funny. It's like, wow, here I am. And then my whole life, when was I last here? And I guess you know, I was using this, I do like this quotation. I guess I do use it a lot. No, 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 no. But what was just really funny was how just some pencil scrolls could evoke my whole sense Of self, past and future. Very interesting. Not bad or good, just really kind of fun to watch that. So, as I think Andrea was talking about somehow, perceptions are, of course, influenced by whatever qualities are arising in the mind, as well as memory, and when the perceptions are um, influenced by delusion, as she's talking about, we recognize inaccurately, or by greed, or by hatred. Because sometimes we just see from a, with another person we recognize differently from each other and there's not necessarily a sense of right or wrong but just to see how we so implicitly assume our perceptions are accurate but just from different personal histories and different cultures and different ethnicities and different countries and different languages we're going to recognize differently even when there seems to be a lot that's similar. There's a simple example with a good friend. Actually, uh, Sally, guy's wife. I was at their house once, and I said something. It was kind of like a, uh, a throw, you know, like a, what do you call it? Just a throw over the couch. And I said something about, oh, yeah, that's a oh, it's on that blue throw over there. And she goes, what, what are you talking about, the blue throw? I said, what do you mean, the blue throw in your couch? Big, big blue blanket on the couch. She said, that's not blue, that's green. And we really, then we talked about it. I could not see green. She could not see blue. It's really interesting, you know? Then, then you could get into a whole thing, who's right, who's wrong, you know, like there's an there's a absolute blue, you know, and I'm right, you know, and you can, you can get nuts about it. Okay, we didn't come to blows over the stupid blue-green Afghan, but that quality of perceptions that don't match, that can lead to war. It leads to a lot of arguments. Think of a close relative, that you have a disagreement about a particular situation with. How much of that's based in altering different perceptions of what went on? It's really powerful. And so then when the perception's inaccurate, the whole world we create isn't reliable. The Buddha said, this is his definition of papancha, of complication, concocting, you could say. So dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is sense contact. With the sense contact as conditioned, there is feeling tone, (vedana). So that's another aggregate as well as perception. So this, what one feels, that one perceives. So you feel it, right away, perception. Beautiful blue throw. Green, not so pretty. Blue, nice. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, One mentally proliferates, one complicates with associations, memories, etc. And with these proliferations as the source, the mind, the heart is beset. It is assailed with mental perceptions and notions. Like the story someone told about the monk painting the tiger on the wall and then getting afraid. So there's a perception make up all this stuff, we concoct all this stuff, and whether it's about me or something else, there's a sense of me at the heart of it, and then we really believe it, until we can have a more accurate perception. Simple example, just to see how this happens. I was, oh, a few years ago when I was in Burma, I was at a meditation center, and it was kind of like a little flagstone path leading to a bodhi tree that's surrounded by kind of a concrete wall, just a little thing, and people walk in a circle around it. So I was walking up, and there was a Burmese nun walking around it with her hands in Anjali. And so right away, I saw, okay, that's what I, that was my perception, walking around hands in Anjali. I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? There's such a faith here. And I know a lot of the Burmese nuns have a very deep faith, and a lot of their practice is uh, Buddha Nupassana, really recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, which is both a uh, samadhi uh, uh, collecting practice, but it also really lights up the energy, the faith. So that was my historical information that led to that perception. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, so much faith. So that was the assailing. Then other memories come up, and so the mind's making memories and association think, but it's just a tree, for God's sake. It's just a tree, It's not the Buddha. It's not even the same tree. It's just a tree. She's walking around, you know, so faithful to a tree. What the heck is that all about anyway? And I guess I'm not a devotional type. Blah, blah, blah. While I'm walking up, you know, this is all in the space of like 10 seconds, you know. I get up there so where I can actually see her. She was actually walking around texting on her cell cell phone. (laughs) Oh, okay. So much for all of that, you know. Mm. As soon as you see it, as soon as the perception's accurate, all that story is gone, just gone. It vanishes into thin mist, right? Because it it has no relationship to anything. And then I'm sure my mind went off into some other story, but I don't remember what it was because I just thought it was quite amusing. But that's perception leading to our our whole world, what we perceive, we think about. And when the perception's inaccurate, we get way far away when we recognize accurately, the whole magic show falls apart for that moment. You don't have to tear it apart. It's gone because it doesn't make any sense. Nisargadatta Maharaj says, the world appears so real to you because you think about it all the time. When you stop thinking, it will vanish into thin mist. And you think, I don't want it to vanish into thin mist. As much trouble as it gives me, I'd rather have it than not. And as long as that's the case, you'll have it. So, talking more specifically about the perceptions that lead to this concocting of sense of self, I want to quote um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is such a pithy way, had such a pithy way of putting things. He wrote, well, he didn't write it, but there's a book of his writings that Santikaru Bhikkhu translated very much on the sense of exploring uh, sense of self called um, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, which is really very accessible, fun to read, not all abstruse and scholarly, although he's a great scholar. Anyway, so I'm taking this from that. So he says, just for your reflection, not believe, but to, to bring us into exploring, when you notice sense of self, The sense of self is merely a condition that arises when there is grasping and clinging in the mind. That's it. All this huge trouble-making thing that we're at such pains and suffer from to get rid of, just a condition that's arising when the conditions come together, when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. As a friend of ours says, I want, I need, therefore I am. And it's true, but look and see. Look and see for yourself. And this isn't about some kind of judging of wanting, it's about exploring and seeing. And we can see it like Andre was talking about how, on some really strong levels, we can get really attached to a view of ourselves, or when I mean, she was talking about, I can't remember, but she was angry about something and really attached to that. So, on strong levels, but it's, it's arising. And quite little, in relationship to quite little experiences, hundreds of times every day. That's why we don't, you know, really notice it so much. That's why it feels so ongoing. Merely a condition, which arises when conditions are there for it and passes when they dissolve. Just with the perception you see accurately, the whole thing's gone. You don't have to do anything about it. Wisdom does it. Clear seeing, wisdom, when the perception isn't distorted by Kalatia, by greed, hatred, confusion. So it's a condition, he really says, it's it's a um, sense of self, not a thing, but a verb, an activity. There's words in Pali, ahankara and mamankara, that are translated as kind of I-ing and my-ing. And that's what's going on in relation to something. There's grasping and clinging in relation to some little perception or feeling tone, or feeling in the body, or thought, eyeing, mying, boom, birth of self. So this, rather than think about, is really, I swear it's fun to explore this when you're in somewhere like this on retreat where you, you have the time and the space, and you're not too involved in complicated interactions, so you can kind of see it coming in little ways. And this isn't to get all demoralized, oh, my God, every time I turn around, a sense of self, that's too much. No, that's great it's too much, because that's how we get to see it. If it just came up once a day, you'd have to be, like, so alert to catch it. But luckily, you'll have a lot of opportunities every day. How fortunate are we to explore this in this way? So I'll give this little story. I always use this same one because I like it and then why make up a new one when I have this? It hasn't happened since then, ten years ago. It's the last time sense of self arose. In my <laughs> why are you laughing? Luckily I'm not a, a monk because laying claim to false attainments is a parajika offense, but I am not ordained. So anyway, very simple. Just to kind of give a sense of how we can explore it. I was on a long retreat like this at IMS in Barry quite some years ago, and I know it was quite some years ago because you know this is similar to here. The whole setup: you go in the dining room and eat all 100 people crammed in there, same kind of deal. And I know it was a long time ago because at that time we didn't have so much uniformity of dishes and mugs. <laughs> now everything's the same, but then it was all the mugs that had collected over the 20 years of IMS that people had left there. So you'd walk in to eat or have tea, and there's just, a, you know, shelves of mugs, all completely different. And I was just deep in the retreat, and, you know, for weeks I would just go and take whichever mug, have my tea, whatever, and it was just, you know, just, you know, whatever was going on was going on. It was just simple and easy. But one day, I went in, I took the mug I'm doing, but as I was sitting there drinking my tea, um, what I realized now is it it, it just felt very pleasant. The color was pleasant, the way it felt, you know how some mugs just feel good in your hand was pleasant, and the thought of this is really, this might be the perfect mug. It's just so nice. I like it. I wonder if I should like take it back to my room and keep it, because you did And in that moment, that was birth of self eyeing and mying, me and my mug, right in that moment. Boom! Jati, birth of self, right then. The grasping to the pleasantness, the grasping to the idea of the mug. And then in terms of the dependent origination, which I won't go into, I think Guy will talk about a bit tomorrow, another way the Buddha describes the concocting, the middle part really being, you know, there's contact, there's feeling, tone, the pleasant arises. When there's, not clear seeing with pleasant, the mind naturally moves into kind of leaning into it and then grasping. Or if it's unpleasant, leaning away and grasping at something different. So that's the grasping and the clinging, "Ah, me and my mug. And the next is becoming, becoming, turning into birth, birth of self. So it's all really fast, but from that first sense of, of the mind grasping, the sense of me. There's a condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. So instead of just being like me and my mug, that very quick movement of grasping, it's seeing at the perception, at the pleasant feeling, and then all the birth of self, and then all the attendant thoughts that come with it, all the concocting. And I saw that, and you can feel, and this is where you can really notice when that grasping comes in, it's almost like a physical or mental, however it is for you, like a contraction. You know, the world contracts around. I can just can feel it an, me uh, and my mug. And as long as we're focused on the thing we want, we don't notice that. But really, when the Buddha talks about grasping as a maker of measurement, instead of just the, the awareness, the field of awareness, and things are coming and going, it all narrows down to me and my mug. So in that moment, I saw it. Put it down. Never mind, I'm not going to save it. And the, that was the death of that self. And that's where the dependent origination goes from birth and suffering and death. So in that moment, that was the death of that self. It was over. As Ajahn Chah describes the dependent origination, as you as know, these 12 links, as I just described the middle ones, but he says it happens so fast. It's not like you have moments to explore. Wait, there's the clinging. There's the grasping. Wait a minute. I know birth is about to come. I know be coming, you know. He said, it's like if you fall from a tree, it's really fast, and you hit 12 branches on the way down, but boom, you just <laughs> land in dukkha. You don't really have time to stop and reflect on each branch. Wow! there it is. Birth of self, death of self. He's so funny. Okay, so that was it for then. But the next day, I came into the dining room. So I'm just coming into it, but I did know. I looked for that. I pretended to myself I wasn't, but, you know, I'm not really looking, but just let's just look instead of taking the first. Oh, there it is. So right then, noticing the, the constriction of wanting, the taking it, the sitting down, that this really is a good mug. And so I started, th- maybe I should really take it to my room. I will. And I started plotting, I'm not plotting, I mean, you know, to take it to my room, and the complications. I thought, well, my room is all the way at the other end of the building. I'm walking really slow. That means every meal I have to like take Slept for half an hour walking down to get it. Slept for half an hour back. So I have to start an hour early to get my mug to drink my tea. But okay, maybe not. Put it down. Put it down. And then it really died. It didn't get born again. But to really see, that's the complications that come from birth of self, from grasping at something so simple. So you see, it's fun to watch, right? You don't get all upset about it. Don't take it personally. Every single person, except maybe our Hansel on this earth, the mind is concocting like this all the time, you know? And then we, you know, beat ourselves up because our mind is doing it. Believe me, If we had a choice, would you do this if you had a choice? No, it's just what the habits of mind are doing. So we bring in our moment-to-moment mindfulness and explore it and seeing the difference between what's effortless, you know, the time of awareness, you're just noticing what's happening. There's interest. It may be clear, it may be vague, that doesn't matter. It may be subtle, it may be gross, that doesn't matter. But there's just a sense of effortless being with what's happening, however it is, until... Some grasping at some experience comes up, and there's a sense of self which just kind of freezes everything. And as you know, several people have said, you know, that it's so exhausting. You know, the thoughts, the emotions, the moods, what to do. So, here you can maybe don't notice immediately what's grasped, whether it's a perception or a feeling or a sense of physical sensation or a mood. But we can at least start to notice when there's that glitch, when there's that sense of narrowing, constricting, when everything's gotten complicated. Not so much thinking your way in, but just reconnect with awareness. Ah, okay, all tight and complicated. Feels like this. And you bring in awareness and start exploring it again. See what's really going on. This is where we can really start to notice the power of simple, moment-to-moment, unbiased awareness, which we've been blabbing on about the whole time. If we're looking for something, that looking for is already narrowing the field of possibilities, putting on blinders. But when we're just moment-to-moment, whatever's arising, this willingness to just meet with unbiased awareness, That's what allows for a shift in perception, for recognizing something in a way that we didn't before, for maybe seeing how, oh, how sense of self is constructed, noticing how it vanishes, how the whole magic show can fall apart. Okay, just quick. So something, a, a person that's inspiring for me in the sense of giving me the felt sense of this kind of freshness of moment-to-moment unbiased awareness. Just the newness, the, the, the willingness to be present without an overlay of concept or idea. You know, like I think James showed a picture of a, of a baby, right? Just that new, wow, that newness, that freshness that willingness or interest to learn. And it's so tricky because of our perceptions being, feeling so true and being so subtle, like the blue-green thing. I mean, who knew, you know, until you meet? And how willing are we to just not hold on to the perception and go, oh, maybe it is green. And even trying can't see it. Anyway, someone who inspires me in that way it just gives me that feeling. Is the the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who I you know I haven't ever seen him or heard him play in person, but I've seen various videos and movies about him over the years, and I know in the last few years he's quite involved in a, a project called the Silk Road, which is getting together with musicians from all over the world, mostly from along the Silk Road in the Middle East and in Asia into China, and um, they get together and uh, compose and play with you know all the different instruments and all the different kinds of music, and it's vastly different, you know? Like, he's a trained uh, classical cellist in a uh, Western classical music tradition, and he might be playing with um, musicians from China or from Kazakhstan, from Iran, with different... You know even different scales and different ways of using tone and music and they they get together and compose together and play together it 's really far out you know just the whole this whole sense of incredible openness and curiosity, and not just about I play mine and you play yours, and we try and appreciate each other, but actually doing it together but But I have to say when I listen with my untrained but very uh, ears. But the perception really based on what I've grown up, you know, familiar with and liking, I can't get there. I try, I have a couple of the albums, and I'll, I'll, I'll try, I'll really listen because I love the idea, and my mind's like, oh. well, oh, you know, it's far out, but I can't really relax into it. Let me put on my Chopin nocturnes again, you know. <laughs> and I can see, okay, but that's not good or bad, that's just my perception. But his openness is so far out, you know, and I take that as a quality of the freshness of moment-to-moment mindfulness awareness that's possible. So the other video I saw of him on a, actually it was in Germany years ago on TV, where he was flying in by helicopter to a small tribe in Africa. And they showed him getting out of the helicopter. So it was in German, and I really couldn't understand much of what was said, but oh, my friends were sort of trans. But he didn't really need it. So he gets out of the helicopter, and it was prearranged, and he was meeting the... Um, a really old man who was the, the chief musician of this tribe of bush people. And so they're getting together, and he has his, like, his second best cello, like a million dollar cello he pulls out of the helicopter. And this man has his instrument, which is literally like a round uh, metal oil can with the top and bottom gone, and like a long wooden pole, and it's got two strings on it. And so he was playing that and singing. And uh, then Yoyama would play his cello, and they're playing for each other. And then Yoyama says, oh, let's trade. So they trade instruments. And he's trying to play Yoyama, this thing. He's going, I can't play it nearly as well as you. Just such a freshness, you know. It's so far out to have that, that openness to discover. And so that's really what we're cultivating here with our moment-to-moment mindfulness. Just notice those moments of, wow, look at that completely identified with this thought. Isn't that amazing? That's the quality of word. Oh, I thought this is what's happening. It's not what's happening at all. I was sure that person who's driving me bonkers is the one who was walking across the st- in front of me over my walking path and all those thoughts. Finally, you look up even though you're trying not to. It's not that person at all. Cool. Isn't that amazing how that works? And the whole magic show falls apart. So that's why there's this freshness, this, this mind of, of mindfulness allows wisdom to come in when it's not distorted by Kalatia. And moment by moment by moment, our willingness to just remember mindfulness is what's strengthening the condition for the next moment. So in terms of other aspects of experience that we grasp, create the whole concoction of self. I mean, obviously, this is a huge topic. I'm just going to name a few. So you just notice in yourself Then just a few aspects about. So, of course, as I say, perception. As I mentioned, it's so easy to grasp and have a sense of self about perception, like, you know, seeing my, hand, oh, my handwriting, the whole world in a second. Fun to watch that. Fun to watch it. The sense of body. Now this is a huge one, right? I'm talking about not so much um, idea of body, that's an idea. Notice the difference between idea and what's the actuality of the moment's experience. This is what gets really interesting in terms of mindfulness and perception. So, you know, we all have ideas about our body, a sense of uh, identification of grasping to body as self. But explore here when you feel that, whether it comes up, this is me, you know, the body. Don't just end there. Let your awareness tune into what's the experience in this moment that's being perceived as body and being held to. So, because when you start to see that, the magic show breaks down in a moment-to-moment level. So i just give a couple of examples. You look for yourself and don't agree with me and she's full of it. Okay, just look and see what's true for you. And so if I'm sitting, you know, with my eyes closed in meditation, it says that my knee's killing me. So we all know the difference, I'm sure, between the concept my knee is killing me and the sensations of burning, right? Right, we've talked about that. That's not, it's not easy, but it's not rocket science. But often seeing how that sense of identification with the eyes closed, my knee. What's the actual experience that's being perceived as my knee in that moment? And then whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So often, there really is just sensations of vibrating, for example, and calling it my knee. When I do my knee, there's a, like a mental image that comes in my mind. It's could be totally different for any of you. It's a sense of my body or a mental image of my knee that I don't notice as seeing and the sense of that, that mental image which is just a visual thought and the particular sensation of vibrating and a concept of space like throwing the sensation down here and the mental is here and it's like it's all, that's my knee and not even questioned, you know. That's my body, that's my knee and it's causing a ruckus and it's all, you know, and then we go off into the concoction of me, just explore, not to make it go away. I remember one many years ago I was doing a Vipassana practice where you, um, Goenkaji style, where you, you sweep your attention through your body. And at one point, but I wasn't sitting with Goenkaji then, I was with a different teacher that you could actually talk to about stuff. And um, so, this is a long time ago. So I uh, was sweeping through my body, but there would be this overlay of image, you know, overlay of the image which wasn't the sensations and it was driving me crazy. Because there's the thought that's an image, it's in the way of the sensation. I can't feel the knee because there's the image of the knee. And you know how that is? You get this idea this is wrong and it drives you crazy. Did that ever happen to any of you here in your practice? And I went to the teacher and it's like, thank God he goes, Yeah, okay, the image is the image, the sensation is the sensation. What's the problem? You just notice what's happening. Sound familiar? It's like, oh, right. Image, sensation, fine. You have to put it together into some big show. Just look and see. Look and see, what do you call it? You look in the mirror, and there's this whole idea of me, my body, it's horrible, it's beautiful. It's it's just a seeing. It's just an image. Is that image in the mirror? It's just a sight, you know? Is it me? And then we start thinking about it and and construct it all, but just with moment-to-moment awareness, not to get all woo-woo and falling apart, but just being in the moment. What's the perception? What's being held to in the moment? How is the mind concocting a whole story sense of me? And notice, you turn away from the mirror and say you've had all these you know, horrible thoughts about how you've aged you know, 10 years in the last three weeks and you're never gonna do another retreat, you look <laughs> like hell. And you, and you turn away from the mirror, that whole concoction falls away. You think, oh, what's for lunch? You know, It's all gone. <laughs> notice that, just notice that, it's really interesting. Another big one, big one, Vedana, you know, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. This, it's a mental experience of how the mind feels, an experience. And often it's the Vedana, the, the, the pleasant feeling of something, the unpleasant feeling of something that the, the mind is clinging to, and often that's not quite noticed. So an example in, um, say, you've been having a series of good sittings really pleasant, really calm, really peaceful, or light, whatever it is. And you you know it's, you know it's pleasant, and you, go, you know you like it. You know. But after a while, you're really you're being mindful, you're aware of liking it, and you know, I know it's going to go away. You're telling yourself, and you really believe it. I know this is conditioned. I know it's going to go away. I'm not clinging, right? I'm not clinging. We really think we're not clinging. We know it's going to go, goes away, and by gum, somehow we're really bummed out. So, there, okay, there was clinging. But I really, you really don't think you were clinging to, this, to the experience. And often, it's that pleasant feeling quality, arising moment to moment with perception, that, that the clinging is to, and we don't quite recognize that. We don't quite recognize that. Or clinging to the unpleasant. Yes, why would we cling to the unpleasant? Because we're nuts. But, you know, we keep, keep like I said, the other we keep focusing on the repugnant aspect of something, and that, that marries us to the thing just as much as holding on to the pleasant. So all we're saying is just bring that fresh awareness and notice it, not get rid of it, just notice what's the magic show, how is it concocting us. They mentioned the other night Buddha Dasa often talks about how much pleasant feeling we base our life on. But he's saying more just notice the wave-like nature, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, arising and passing every moment. And we start to just notice that. Well, I guess it's crazy to base our life around wanting pleasant, but we know it's crazy. It happens anyway. There's no point in saying that. Um, but just noticing this. Third level, and this, again, you notice know, so I'm going through the, uh, the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, the mindfulness of mind, emotions, moods, states of mind. And of course, this is a huge area where we perceive, and there's a sense of a grasping to a particular mood, a particular description, a series of thoughts about ourselves. And this is really, I mean, this is really a big area. And what's interesting, the Buddha says, you know, that when, you, when in, in terms of experiencing the sensations of body, and in terms of bringing awareness to the movements of mind. He says the mind is changing so much more rapidly than the body. It's like so much more obviously impermanent. That if you're gonna, I didn't exactly say it this way. If you're gonna, you know, identify with something, it makes more sense to identify with the body. But really, maybe um, this is me, not the Buddha, because the mind's changing so rapidly. To me, that's really a much stronger place to where I don't notice that subtle grasping of to a particular perception, a particular mood. and we really, that's me, right? This happens so much more quickly. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed, I'm sure how when a mood comes, even though you can say to yourself, this wasn't here yesterday, probably won't be here tomorrow, but it's a difficult mood, isn't part of it telling you, but this is really how it is, and this is really who I am deep in the depths. Even though I didn't know it before, I wasn't aware of it yesterday, but it was there, waiting, you know, to come out. It was really there, I just was ignoring it in my delusion. But really just noticing how and what is being clung to and how that concocts a sense of self from Ajahn Samedo. So then the self arises. I start thinking about myself, my feelings, my memories, my past, my fears and desires, and the whole world arises around Ajahn Samedo. It takes off into orbit. My views, my feelings, and my opinions. Right? And you see how we can, that can happen from any sense experience? And this is also a really fun thing to explore, sort of in the way the stories that Andrea was talking about the other night. From anything the most innocuous sense experience. You see a deer. Oh, yes, see, ah, oh, the cute deer, and Bambi, and the fifth grade, and Old Yeller, and you know, and it's endless, you know? Pretty soon I go to Old Yeller, I'm in trauma. Really, I mean, that really did a job on me when I was five years old. And if you're too young to have seen the movie, it's just as well. It's just about a dog. <laughs> it's about a dog. <laughs> you know, or, or something, uh, then something beautiful comes, and you're, oh, beauty in my life and all, and then something difficult comes, oh, the horrible things in my life, and it's just flipping back and forth every two minutes, but without noticing that each is a new concoction, birth and death of self. We don't really get that. We think it's a steady state. Ajahn Sumedho. Then, but if I recognize that I'm taking off, it's my my taking off into orbit. If I recognize that, then my refuge is no longer in being that person. I'm not taking refuge in being a personality or my views and opinions. So then, the world of Ajahn Sumedho ends. So just noticing that. This whole huge world of Carol can come up around seeing a deer and, then you whole, and then you turn around, the whole thing drops away and it's gone. You know? Notice that. Notice the goneness. Notice the seething power of these emotions and stories and thoughts, but the, the absolute emptiness of them when we don't um, keep buying into the grasping, when we just notice how the magic shows working. This is from Dingo Kensey, and he's talking about, um, I'll read it. I, the sense of I, is just a thought. Thoughts and feelings have no intrinsic solidity, form, shape, or color. When a thought of anger arises in the mind with such force that you feel aggressive and destructive, is that anger in the mind actually holding a weapon? Is it at the head of an army? Can it really burn things or carry them away like a violent river? No, that actual anger, like any other thought or feeling, has no lasting self-existence. It's just like wind roaring in empty space. I love that. With any strong emotion, beautiful ones too. you don't have to damp it down, but just, it's like wind roaring in empty space. Don't need to grasp it, we don't need to fear it, we don't need to do anything about it. Just let the wind roar in the empty space and it blows itself out and no problem. When there's not that grasping sense of self, when there is, just let it roar and notice when it falls away again. So just tuning in when there's this contraction of grasping, and of course, go into even more subtle experience like motivation, volition. We always talk about that. Well, who's the one that's, you know, deciding to move? Just a mental factor arising or the sense of knowing of consciousness itself. Because it's so arising every moment and it's so subtle, again, it can feel like me. They can just be this subtle, grasping, tightening, contracting around it. So just noticing whenever you feel that little or gross, incredibly gross or subtle, sense of the contraction of grasping and experience, that sense of self. Notice the birth of self. Get interested in how the magic shows concoct it. Notice when it falls away. Because as Ajahn Buddha Dasa says, birth and death of self happens hundreds of times in a day. So just as we notice the birth, notice the death, and notice the times in between says, you know, it's truly, this is Buddhadasa again, it's truly normal and natural that the nature of the mind is just to be aware. The times of when there's no birth of self, after death of self, is just awake, calm. Spacious is a metaphor that's often used. Spacious as opposed to the narrowness of fixation, of clinging. But space can be an idea that we also cling to. But this sense of he says, in any moment when the, in our mind, when the mind, the heart, is not clinging or grasping at something and creating a sense of self, in any moment when that's not present, he says, this is Buddha Das's language, we truly um, realize emptiness. Because it's just the emptiness of sense of self. It's truly normal and natural. It's not like some huge endpoint that we've got to get to. It's just the way things are understanding or recognizing anatta isn't like something that's here that's driving the bus goes away. We just recognize differently. It's not like everything falls apart because now we're not holding it all together. I mean, we're not doing such a great job trying to hold it together, let's face it. It's, it's that, in fact, that burden of trying to hold it together falls away. And it's just truly normal and natural to notice the time between births. That's why we see periods of calm can be interesting. But you see how uncomfortable calm. The mind is what what Buddha Dasa calls it volunteering for suffering. It's calm. Nothing's going on. All of a sudden, oh, let's get something to go on. Let me think about this horrible thing that might happen, you know, in ten years. I'd rather be a suffering self than just this calm in between taking birth and death of self. Just notice it. And then the last, just last thing I want to point out that while reality does not change the sense of, uh, you know, emptiness of self this natural uh, state of things is not the uh, emptiness of disconnection or the calmness of just not caring of nothing matters that's not clear perception sense of self. That's not the liberating truth the Buddha's pointing us to. It's not passive, unfeeling, or uncaring. It's really the doorway that allows that when when our mind and heart isn't all caught up in this obsessive self-referencing, that's when metta and compassion and wisdom naturally are the responses. The Tibetan said, once you realize emptiness... It would be absurd to do anything negative. It just doesn't make sense. When you realize emptiness, compassion arises with it simultaneously. I'm talking just in a moment, in a moment. So two other quick quotations from Dogen Zenji. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To be enlightened by all things is to remove the barriers, I would say the seeming barriers, between oneself and others. And the last from Mary Oliver. Love yourself, then forget it, then love the world. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.